from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. I'm Danny Wisentowski. In 2020, Cori Bush made history as Missouri's first Black congresswoman. Beyond that, she's the first woman to represent the first district, the first nurse to represent the Show Me State, and the first activist from the Black Lives Matter movement elected to Congress. The St. Louis County Democrat blazed a path for others to follow in her footsteps, which makes her new memoir aptly named. The Forerunner, a story of pain and perseverance in America, was published this week and is available in stores now. St. Louis on the Air senior producer Emily Woodbury spoke with Representative Bush this morning. Representative Bush, thank you so much for talking with me today. Yes, thank you for having me. So your your book opens up with descriptions of St. Louis that are honest, beautiful, and at times heart-wrenching. You know, you describe the the fired bricks that can stand overwhelming force, the asphalt that reminds you of pain and trauma from domestic assault, of police tyranny, and then the diversity of culture, people, and food that can be found here. There are so many descriptions of great <laughs> St. Louis institutions here. Yeah. St. Louisans will really enjoy kind of seeing their own city reflected in this memoir. And yeah. and you also touch on the legacies of slavery and segregation here. Um, and from an early age, your father made sure that you and your siblings understood not only your own family's history, but also Black history and Black excellence. Yes. What would you like people to know about how your dad shaped you and your siblings as you were growing up? I looked at him as this tall man, you know, this strong man. And and I didn't understand it as a kid, but, you know, I knew that there was strength there and I felt protection. Uh, And I knew that he loved us because he took the time to not only make sure that we, we had a roof over our head and we, and, you know, we ate uh, full meals uh, because he would cook. Let me just say my dad would cook. Um, But also just that, you know, he made sure his his time with us, it wasn't, and, and it's not a knock to anyone else at all, but um, but in our household, my time with dad was going, uh, reading books about, uh, you know, black history, reading uh, books uh, about um, people that you may not regularly hear about when we speak about, or speaking uh, about black history. In school, we were learning about Dr. King, which we learned about Dr. King at home, but he would, he would take it further and teach us, even kings and queens of Africa, he would, you know, he, he taught us that it was, it's okay to be in our skin and our skin is beautiful and don't let anybody look down or treat you or belittle you, um, based upon your skin. Um, my dad was, uh, that example is still is with me today, even though for a few years I was knocked off my square. Yeah, and we will certainly get to that, that story of, of pain and perseverance in America is the yeah. title of your book. You, yeah. you, you came up in the Baptist church and your family was uh, attended Baptist services, but you attended Ascension Catholic Elementary School, which you yeah. really loved. But that school offered a different view of American history than what you were learning at home. Yeah, I didn't see. Um, so all that my dad, I'd say over 90% of what my dad was teaching us at home, um, I didn't find that at school. 
Um, and now they did introduce us to, you know, to black history and, you know, uh, but it wasn't, we didn't talk about the middle passage, like we would talk about it at home. You know, we didn't, uh, you know, we watched every bit of roots at home, but we didn't just watch roots. We, um, we, my dad would talk about, uh, he would, you know, like after an episode of it, we would talk about it and, you know, why this is happening. And, um, and we didn't get that at school. Uh, and I, I understand that, uh, at that school, they felt, I, I believe that they felt like, well, we have this predominantly black student body, um, and predominantly black families. So, you know, we, sh- that it should be there, but I think how to teach that was probably difficult. And then because most of our, um, most of our teachers, most of the staff, um, were white. Mm. And you did have a couple black teachers. Um, and that really meant a lot to you to see yourself represented, to see what could be. Oh my gosh. It was, I, I, I couldn't believe it. I didn't know. I just didn't know that we could have a black teacher that, that I did I didn't know that that was, I mean, I was a child, you know, growing up. So all I knew was what I had seen and to have this black teacher walk into the room and, and she stayed in the room. She was our teacher for the whole day. I remember Miss Whitfield was a um, substitute and, but just to have her in the classroom all day, I felt like my mom was there or even for her more like my auntie. She just reminded me a lot of my aunt um, Sherry. Um, but to have that, I felt so, you know, it just made me feel so comfortable. And I and I got to see what I could be, you know, so easily. I got to see, um, you know, this black beauty and excellence because, you know, colorism, uh, col- colorism, but also just um, the the way that darker skinned black people were treated. I mean, lighter skinned black folks are treated horrible, are treated you know really bad too. But but darker skinned black people, you know, there is a difference. And for her to just shine the way that she would, and she was so intelligent. She would just you know she knew how to command the room. And I just I wanted to be like her. And as a kid, you worked as a candy striper at Normandy Osteopathic Hospital. And it was there that, you know, you kind of got that spark, that passion to study medicine. You write that you saw a black nurse there and there were a lot of white nurses there. But you saw a black nurse there who was poised. She was in charge. You write that she was fly, you know, and that's another example (laughs) of that power of representation that really led you into your calling to be a nurse. Yes. And so and and the thing that's that is kind of ironic about that is because both of my grandmothers are, were, you know, were in nursing. Um, my their their sisters were in nursing, you know. So it's on. It was on both sides of my family, um, and so I, and I would see both of my grandparents, both my grandmothers, with the white hat, the white dress, the white stockings, and the you know big white shoes. You know, I would see that at home. I never saw them working, so I didn't make the connection. But it was when I saw. That nurse, that black nurse working, and I saw her interaction with the patients and how she just commanded the space and uh, the respect that was there for her and just her knowledge. I, 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 I was blown away, and I knew then that I wanted to be able to touch people the same way that she did. 
you thrived in elementary school. You you kind of paint yourself as a little bit of a book nerd. Um, you yeah. really loved it. But high school is tough on you, especially that first semester where you attended Blessed Trinity. And you encountered some horrifying instances of racism and bullying. And that's not from classmates, not just from classmates. That was from teachers, too. And you you say that that time in your life filled you with self-doubt that took years to understand and undo, that the experience taught you that there was a glass ceiling for ambitious, dark-skinned black girls. It, it was your dad who really recognized your deflated spirit there. He was picking you up from school one day. And, you know, you, you write that he really taught you and your siblings to finish what you started. But in this instance, he recognized you needed to get out of there. Yeah, and and that's, that's part of the reason why I tried to just bear it. I mean, I tried to just, you know, start each day off and like tomorrow will be better. Maybe this is just freshman hazing. And because it's there, I'm not around other black students because uh, it's not that many of us, you know, that maybe at some point they'll see my worth and I'll be one of the, you know, one of the, you know, one of the body like everyone else. Like I just, I felt like that would happen. Like I, I could not go to my dad and tell him, you know, he, he was, they were spending so much money to send me to the school and they were scraping by, like they were making a huge sacrifice to send me there. And I just didn't want to disappoint them. And my father was a, a stickler about if you start it, you finish it. Um, we don't fail in our household. So I just tried to like keep it to myself, but then it just got to the point to where um, every day, like there was not, I, there was not one good day at the school. There was not one day where I laughed and like and made a couple friends. Like that did not happen. Every day I was isolated. Every day I was called the N word. The N word. Every day there was something. There were teachers calling me out. Just I don't know why they would just pick just call me out. I'm sitting there. I, I'm not even talking to anybody because nobody was talking to me. You know, I'm just sitting there trying to listen and do my work. And they would just call me out, you know, and just say mean things to me um, or put me on the spot. It was really a difficult time. And it was hard because I had just come from a school where we had a predominantly white uh, uh, staff, uh, the teachers and the administration, but I wasn't treated like that. None the, the students weren't treated like that at all. And at that time, you know, to put on top of this, you know, boys and even grown men were starting to treat you differently. And I realized that nearly a third of your memoir is dedicated to your romantic relationships in your teens and early adulthood and the ways that these boyfriends and one ex-husband, you know, repeatedly let you down, mistreated you as a partner. And I have to say, this part of the book um you know, to say it's harrowing, I think, is an understatement. I mean, the abuse mm -hmm. you described, particularly an incident where your ex kidnapped you and beat you for hours and another when that same man rammed and totaled your car in a car chase on I-70, left you severely yeah. wounded. What's your message to those who can relate to your experience being in abusive relationships? What would you tell those going through similar experiences today? That there is help that there is help right now, that there are people who will not judge you, that there are people who 
will see you right where you are and help you through the process, even if you're not ready to leave. They will help you in your place of not being ready to leave until you are ready. And there are resources to help you leave. Um, but that also going through what you're going through is not your fault. You don't deserve it. Um, and you are worth love. You're worthy of love. You are deserving of love. You're deserving of peace, dignity, and respect. And as a society, we owe that to you. Um, and uh, this doesn't, this that you're going through does not define who you will be and how much, how beautiful um, your life can be. What kind of help would you recommend? What would have helped you at that time? Just knowing that there were uh, resources available that were free and um, where people wouldn't judge me. I think that was a big part of it is I felt like if I sought out services somewhere that people were going to come and take take the person I was dating and like throw him in jail and, you know, um, and then I would just be, you know, out there on my own. Um, I didn't, I, I just didn't know what, didn't know what would happen, but I knew I just didn't want him to end up in jail. I couldn't bear that on top of what I was dealing with personally. Um, also, I needed therapy. I needed therapy at that time, but I just didn't know, um, you know, for me growing up in the church, therapy was not a thing. You know, you talk to your pastor and I tried, I tried to go to my church to talk to them. And in the book, I write about how basically I was like shut out of the church um, and so I didn't have anyone to talk to about it. I couldn't talk to my parents because I knew how they felt about them. Um, and so I, um, but, but there is help. Get therapy. There are service, there are resources, there are organizations um, that will offer you free services to get out of the situation or to at least help to, um, to heal you from, from uh, inside out. Um, we need, we need uh, we need to have co the coping skills to be able to manage what's happening to us, the PTSD, the, um, the depression, the anxiety. Um, we, can, we can overcome that, and there are people that can help. And if this helps someone right now, I want to mention that you can reach the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 800-799-7233. That's 800-799-7233, or text START to 88788. We'll be back shortly to continue this conversation. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Welcome back. We're listening this hour to a conversation with Congresswoman Cori Bush about her new memoir, The Forerunner, A Story of Pain and Perseverance in America. This book was published this week and is available in stores now. Just before the break, Representative Bush described the harrowing experience of being in several abusive relationships and her message to those who might find themselves in similar situations today. Let's jump back into our conversation with producer Emily Woodbury, which was taped this morning. What was the experience of writing this memoir like, of examining your life in such a way? I knew going in that it would be difficult. I didn't realize it would be as difficult as it was. 
I, um, so I've been in therapy since 2016. Um, uh, you know, I write about a sexual assault that happened um, just weeks after my very first uh, race, um, after the primary. And so I've been in therapy since then. Uh, and so I felt like, you know, I have these coping skills. I've been doing, you know, I've been doing okay. I understand my triggers. Um, and uh, and I, 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 I feel like I know how to, to walk through this thing. And so as I was writing the book, though, initially I just I just told the stories. But then I had to go back. It was the editing process that really shook me because then I had to go back and, you know, these stories that were more or less surface, I had to go back in and, like, really give, bring them to life because um, I, I wanted to take the reader into those moments because I wanted people that have never experienced sexual assault or even domestic violence that um, that talk down on those or don't believe those that have, I wanted them to be able to go inside of one of those moments to help them to see what it, what that is really like. So what it, I had to go into those moments. I had to shut everything out and to take my mind in back into that place, back into that time where, where I could uh, see the room and smell the room where I could feel the touch. I had to do that and had to sit in that place and, and write that out. And I just remember typing on the computer and wanting to just knock it off the table. Um, I remember crying, like just just crying and crying um, or just getting up and just like needing to just step away. Um, and, and so much so to where my partner would even, um, he would see me going through it and he would say, okay, I'm going to cook. Like, let me cook you something and because I love his cooking. And so he would cook me these meals, you know, or we would just stop and take a break and just watch a movie just to get me out of it. Um, it was, or I would have to call my therapist. I would have to talk to my therapist through it. It was a very tough, uh, tough time. I wanted to give up, honestly. I, I can only imagine. I'm so glad that you had the sort of support of therapy, of a partner that brought you back into the present because yeah. I just, yeah, I can't even imagine. For, for me, a big takeaway of your book was the need for better reproductive care in our region, particularly for black women. Your experience with obstetrics care and then postpartum care was especially distressing. But before you became a mother, you had two abortions. And both yes. times at the clinic, you were not treated with the care that you deserved. W would you share a bit about those two experiences and what you didn't receive but would have benefited from in those moments? Yeah. So with the first um, abortion, um, it, I was uh, 17 when I got pregnant. Um, later, I realized, uh, just, you know, this year, I realized that, that it was coercion. It was it was rape. rape. Um, but I was 17 when I got pregnant, just graduated high school, didn't know what to do, was just very surprised that I was even pregnant. Um, I went, uh, I turned 18 just a few weeks later um, and sought out an abortion. There was a young girl, um, sitting in the waiting area, and um, I, I just remember hearing the staff in the waiting area saying such negative things about her. She was about 13 years old, I believe, and uh, she was dark-skinned like me. She kept her head down. She didn't say anything. She was sitting there by herself, it seemed, and I just kept hearing the staff say, you know, just say, say horrible things about her, and I just couldn't understand why they were saying these things, you know, about her as if it was her fault 
that she was there um, as if she was like, you know, like, oh, it's a problem, like being promiscuous is the reason why she's here and like it's her fault. Um, it was really a hard thing to hear. And if I could hear it, she could hear it. Um, but I went into the counseling um, room and I was told, like, they're going to counsel you about your options. You know, this is mandated by the state or mandated somewhere. Um, so I went in and I'm thinking that there's going to be this counselor. And, you know, you're taught about people who are going to counsel you. So I went in thinking that they're going to try to talk me out of the abortion. Um, and uh, actually, when I walked, went in, they just told me, they basically belittled me, made it clear that you're going to end up on welfare if you keep this child. This child is um, is underweight. Uh, you, you know, um, you should just go ahead and have this abortion. You can get pregnant again. It's what you people do. And so it, I was crushed because this is an adult that uh, is a professional that I thought was going to actually counsel me. But when I went just a few moments later, I went into the next room where it was a room of, um, of, of young white girls who were preparing for their abortions. And I walked into them talking about their counseling sessions and how they talked about adoption and about how so many people would be willing to adopt um, their babies if they choose to make a different decision and, um, and they how, just how comfortable they felt which was completely different in my experience. Um, and then the other abortion, uh, I was 12 weeks, so I knew that I had to hurry up and like make a decision. Uh, so I went. Um, at this time, I'm on the table. And then I realized, you know what? No, I don't want to do this. I wanted more time to think. I, I wasn't sure yet. I hadn't talked to the father. I wanted to a little more time. And so I opened. I said no to the nurse. Um, I wanted to get off the table, and and basically they wouldn't let me off the table when they put they inserted the instrument and started the abortion um, before, and I just didn't want that at the time. Um, I wasn't ready to make the decision. Um, looking back, though, I don't. Um, I'm not here to uh, um, like come down on uh, those clinics of you know necessarily the people. Um, they they they. They missed it, and and they did some horrible things. But you know, you can find that with a doctor, you go to a provider, and you have a, a bad experience. You know, um, dealing with your diabetes. Do you just stop, you know, getting treated for your diabetes, or do you find another provider and still get the help you need? Um, I got the help that I needed. The abortion was the right decision for me, um, and so. But now I will say that those organizations, that those folks are doing a lot of work. They understand that there is medical discrimination all around, um, even in abortion services. So they have made big strides to really correct those problems, and um, they're still working because there is much more to do. And. The the disrespect by by doctors continued. As you entered your 20s, you became pregnant with your son, Zion, and then your daughter, Angel, and your concerns continued to be dismissed. Um, they even told you things were certain when they were not, like when doctors yeah. um, and a priest called to administer last rites told you your son, Zion, would not survive when he was born at just 23 weeks. He spent months in the NICU, and during that time, you write, you had to be vigilant because your concerns were Zi- for Zion were dismissed. I mean, when his lung collapsed, you literally had to slam a chair against the nurse's desk for them to respond to you. Yes. I, what did these experiences reveal to you about how reproductive care needs to change in this country? I, 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 still, don't, I still don't understand why we're here. I still don't understand why black women's pain, black women's voices um, are not uh, uh, respected, why we're not heard in healthcare. 
um, but especially as it relates to reproductive uh, reproductive health. Even though I was young, I think um, I was, you know, 22, uh, I think, when that happened. Um, and so but did that mean that I didn't deserve to be um, respected, treated like a parent that knows their child? And that's the thing that really pissed me off was that, you know, it was like, well, we, we, we're all knowing, like, we, we, we know better. Well, I know my child. You're concentrating on all the children in this room. I'm concentrating on this one. You know, I've been at this bed since he was born, since I was since I got out of the hospital, since he was born. I, w- I maybe would leave every few days. I would leave every few days to go home, take a shower and come back. I would yeah, I was there. So I knew my son's breathing patterns. I knew when he was crying around that too, but you couldn't hear him. But I, could, I knew when he was crying. I knew when he was like, I knew my child and and. Uh, we're still dealing with that today that has not that has not been properly addressed in um in the healthcare field you know why is it black women why is it that we don't know our bodies why is it that we don't know our children like what what where what does that come from and when we think about the history of how black women were treated years ago we if we take this back to 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 slavery you know we take it back to slavery black women were taking care of white children you know, um, so we were good enough to take care of other folks' children, but we're not good enough to, we don't know enough to take care of our own bodies and our own children. You know, it's just, we have, it's so much work that needs to be done, but it only happens if we continue to push. The threat of being a forerunner, someone who blazes the way for others, presents throughout the book. And you're not just a forerunner in politics, but you were also a single mom guiding a congregation. I really enjoyed hearing about how in 2012 you founded Remnant Church Ministries, and you made sure to take your preaching out on the streets. You wanted to meet people where they were. Other faith leaders dismissed you as you were a single woman, but you persevered. What drove you in that moment to keep going back out, even when other faith leaders were dismissing you? Because I was missed. Um, because I was left. I, I the, the way it felt was like I was left bleeding in the street, and people would just walk past me and see me bleeding in the street. You know, like that's the way that's the way I would feel. And so um, I. Um, and, and I'm talking about like all that I had gone through, all the traumas and um, that I had gone through in my past. I felt like that's how people left me. And so I didn't want to do the same for others. So I wanted to go out into the street and meet with people, talk with people, talk to people that other people are walking past. You know, if, if um, uh, so we made a point to go into the areas where we knew that, um, that, uh, our unhoused community members, you know, were, we would go into areas where there was high incidence of violence or we would go, those are the areas that we would, we would spend our time. And, um, and, and I loved it because people would say, people, you know, people don't come over here and, and talk to us, you know, like this isn't what, you know, and, or people would even, I remember even being stopped from uh, a group of guys said, um, who's paying you? Um, but yeah, nobody, we just wanted to just love on the community. Um, and I wanted to give what I needed back when I was going through so much. And a lot of 
what you learned there helped you during the Ferguson protests of 2014. I mean, your group, Ferguson Frontline, stayed out on the streets, keeping attention on Michael Brown's story and the larger push for defending black lives. And this was when even legacy civil rights leaders were staying at home. Did what you learn in your ministry help you during those times when people kind of left the streets and stopped protesting? Absolutely, because even, um, like you said, you know, the the work that I was doing um, as a pastor, you know, we worked with a lot of people who were, you know, in human trafficking. We worked with, you know, just so many different groups of people we met out there on the ground. And it taught me that, like, each person matters. And even if you have to do it by yourself, you can help someone. Like, you could see people's lives change just because you showed up and you connected them to what they needed. And so I felt the same way out um, with Ferguson Frontline, being out there for the for more than 400 days. You know, we felt like we could make a change, and we knew that we could. We knew that if we just stayed, that if we kept going, even in the face of all the adversity, even when the cameras left, even as they as people lost jobs because of the because of their protest activity, lost homes, uh, lost lost relationships because of it, uh, it that it, there was a bigger you know, that there was something bigger that we were trying to attain and um, and it was worth it. And I, you know, that was a turning point in my life. That's one of those moments that you don't know is coming, um, but you just have to walk through and just believe in your heart that you're, you know, you're doing the right thing. Just know you're doing the right thing. And even if it hurts, keep going. As you write at the beginning of the book, this is not a typical political memoir. In, in our final minute here, What do you hope everyday people, particularly those who see themselves reflected in your story, what do you hope they take away from it? Oh, that you are loved, that you, your life is worth, you know, all of the goodness, all of the peace, all of the prosperity. And don't let whatever your story is, whatever, whatever the trials and tribulations, whatever those um, are or, or have been, don't let that hold you back or stop you. Your life is limitless. The sky is not your limit because there is much beyond the sky. So um, so go for it all and get the help that you need. But you, you can be all the things that you believe in more. Don't let any setbacks or any, any uh, missed opportunities stop you. Congresswoman Cori Bush, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you, Emily. That was Emily Woodbury's conversation with Missouri 1st District Congresswoman Cori Bush, taped earlier this morning. The representative is up for re-election this November. She's running against Republican business leader Andrew Jones Jr. This episode was produced by Emily Woodbury. Audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our production intern is Avery Rogers. Alex Hoyer is our executive producer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Our podcast proudly supports St. Louis artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? 
Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.